to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention. Today, I am really excited to have Luis Piccini with us from uh, Wildlife Games. Uh, we're going to be digging into, I think, one of the, the hardest topics that just about every studio is facing today, which is how do I create a new game that is so fun and so interesting and so good that, you know, this person is willing to abandon all the time, money and energy they've spent uh, investing into, you know, their current game. Uh, and I think this continues to get harder and harder because uh, top game companies like your Kings and Zupercells are trying to keep those people around. Um, and there's, you know, more and more games that are hitting soft launch and then ultimately are getting killed. Um, so uh, today I'm, I'm really excited to just dive in, you know, how you have been able to kind of do that and go through this process of soft launching, which is also something that I feel like is, is very difficult to do. Um, you're trying to make all these decisions and, you know, you don't have a lot of time to do it. Um, and sometimes you get radically different numbers within your soft launch, you know, lots of, lots of things to dig in here. So I'm, I'm super excited. Uh, Luis has a lot of experience with these types of things um, and actually just kind of soft launch your own game again. So uh, excited to kind of dive into that. But before we get into all that good stuff, Luis, I, I always like to ask, what's your story? Uh, how'd you get into games? Uh, how'd you end up where you are? Hey, hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So Oh, first of all, I'd like to say all the opinions that I'm going to share here are my own, not my employer. So how did I get into games? I actually started my professional life as a consultant. I worked for a band company, a management consultant here. I worked for it here in Brazil. And I had a few friends who left the company to go into startups. And one of those startups were Wildlife Studios. At the time, the company had a different name. It was called TFG, Top 3 Games. And... It was kind of stealth, like not many people had heard of it, even though it had already more than $1 billion loads at the time. I myself hadn't heard of it before. And when like, I went to the office and saw all those people there, like quite big company, quite big office, a lot of very smart people, I said, okay, I think this is where I want to be. This is where I need to be to grow professionally. And I say this because we have a kind of interesting problem in Brazil that at the time we didn't have quite large gaming industry in Brazil. So... We couldn't recruit people from other gaming companies. We had to kind of build the, the know-how from scratch. So like the founders of the company, Victor and Arthur, one of them was a banker. The other one was also a management consult consultant. And we hire a lot of people that are like, okay, you're bright. You have never worked with games before. Come work with us and we'll start teaching you about games. And for me, this was perfect because I love games. I always played games and I wanted to learn about it. So I had this opportunity to see how Victor and Arthur, and later how other people in the company thought about games and thought about like, how can we make this fun? And to develop the side that I have come to learn, I really enjoy. And so I entered the company in 2018 and I started working as a product manager in, in new games. And I worked in a few games that hasn't been, haven't been launched. But then on July, 2019, we kind of focused the whole company on the two games that we wanted to launch that year that were Zuba and Tennis Clash. And this is my first experience. This was my first experience with soft launching and launching. Yeah. So basically we said, okay, we want to launch this game. We want to try to do this as fast as possible. So let's try to do it in three months. So we had this timeline. Okay, we have three months to make this game profitable, huge, and launch it like worldwide as, as profitable as possible. And it was a bit crazy. 
we kindly refer to that time as the war time because everyone was like just in their office trying to say, okay, I need to make this work for half of the company for Zuba, half of the company for Tennisflash. And luckily both of, of those went out like really well. So I don't kind of recall exactly the numbers for Zuba, but Tennis Clash was the number one game in downloads in 78 yeah. countries. We hit top 10 in all countries that we released. Uh, so one thing that's particularly fun to, to mention is that uh, on the weekend that we launched, we had Call of Duty and Mario Kart in number one and number two of the world. And those are two games like franchises that I've spent most of my childhood playing. So like when I when I woke up on a Saturday and Tennis Clash was ahead of both of them, I just had like to screenshot it and send it to all my friends. Like, look, I beat these guys. Remember, like we, we should play this in college. Yeah, I, I'm ahead of them now. And it only lasts like a few days, but it was a very good feeling. That's amazing. Then, yeah. And then I stayed in Tennis Clash for a bit over a year after that. And I realized that I had more fun creating new games than growing live games. So I asked to go back to new games. And I started pitching some ideas of stuff that I wanted to do. And one of those ideas was Sky Warriors. So I think I can go in more detail about the, the whole process afterwards. But basically, uh, we started making Sky Warriors in December last year. And we soft launched it eight days ago. It was on July 1st. And basically, what I'm doing right now is looking at a bunch of numbers and trying to understand what's good, what's bad about the game, and what's going to be the plan moving forward. That's awesome. So... You know, what's the secret to launching these amazing games, Luis? So I think there is no one magic bullet. Like a lot of things have to go well, including a, a bit of luck in time of the market. <laughs> so for Tennis Clash, I think the, the one thing that was really good was how off the team, and it was like a big team in yeah. the two weeks before launch, we had 54 people working full time in the project. And that's only like the core team. So product, engineering, and art. This doesn't count all the UA folks, all the other guys that help us, like analytics, even like legal folks and these guys that have to be there to help us make everything. And everyone was very committed. Like we want to make the biggest sport game in the world. Like this was the goal. We were like aiming big. And because we said, okay, so we want to, first we wanted to make the biggest tennis game in the world. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at numbers and said, okay, being the biggest tennis game should be easy. So let's aim higher. Let's go for the biggest sports game. And, and like we were, we had a lot of fun toying with this idea. Like, okay, so how can we be bigger than FIFA, bigger than FAST, bigger than Go Flash, bigger than all those guys? And we also went very deep into understanding what makes tennis fun. So we had four product managers in the game and the four of us started taking classes of tennis together. So like I didn't play tennis before. I said, okay, I'm making a tennis game. I need to understand how this works and like what makes tennis fun, what, how do do we change between tactics? Like what's important in the real game? So we can translate this to the tool of the mobile game. And we started taking classes together in July, 2019. And we are still playing together to this day. I have like uh, a game with them, a batch of them in two days. And like having people that are passionate about the subject of the game that you're making, I think it's very important. So like in Skywaters, I have a bunch of people that are really addicted to flying, flying simulators and they watch movies, they play everything that they can with, with airplanes. And this is really important to get in the details right. So even small stuff, like once I referred to the elevators are, as flaps and someone said, no, no, that's wrong. Flaps are one thing, elevators are other, and like gave me a, a full course on what's the difference between those. And I think this is also really important. Yeah. And I think one other thing is being very honest with what's working and what's not. One of the most hard decisions is like when something that you like 
about the game, it's clearly not working and you have to kill it or even the whole game sometimes. And you have to have that, that decision, okay, so this isn't working, we have to change it or we have to kill the whole project. And it's hard to, to be intellectually honest about this because you love that, that part of yeah. the game, like you want to see it happen, but if it's not working, it's not working. Like it's, it's a fact, so you have to accept it. Is there a good point to know like when something isn't working? Like, you know, as an example, um, I've kind of been helping a uh, smaller studio. Um, they're all, they're a talented team of guys um, with like X Blizzard, X Riot. Like they, they've got a game that, you know, in some ways resembles a little bit of like a Archero kind of gameplay or something like that, where you kind of run around and shoot things and whatnot. And they've got, you know, decent metrics like day one retention at like 30 percent which like isn't terrible considering the amount of content they have and you know there's not really a lot of like features and depth and metagame and stuff to it but you know they've been working on it for a while and and at what point do we say we're probably not going to hit that like day one you know 40 percent that we are shooting for and this game probably doesn't make sense to scale because it's not going to be able to achieve our actual uh, desired outcomes and stuff like that. Because I, I think it's very easy to be like, well, yeah, it's 30% because we haven't done this yet, or we haven't done this other thing. And like, that's a crucial feature and that's a crucial feature. And I've fallen into this trap before. Um, and you know, you might spend another six months and you're still where you're at. Um, and it might never get better. And like, when is the appropriate time? And how do you know when you say, well, we just got to kill this thing and move on or take it and change it drastically or, you know? Yeah. So this is definitely a hard question. Uh, I think the one exercise that's very good to, to, to make is, okay, if everything that I'm planning to do in the game goes exactly as planned, how big is this going to be? It's like really get down to the number and say, okay, so my retention right now is this, my ARPU is this, my projected LTV is this, my CPI is this. And these are the features that I plan to do in the next few months. And try to estimate like how much of an upside each of those will bring you. And of course, as if you have launched other games before, or if your company have launched other games before, you, you can see stark data from that. If not, you can try to use uh, services. Like there are a lot of services in the industry about like, Oh, how well do piggy banks um, help your game or um, battle passes and this kind of stuff and try to say, okay, so if after I do all of this, this is where I'm projecting to hit. Like if that's still not good enough, then you don't have a game. Like you should just give yeah. up. The thing is like, usually that will be good, but only if everything goes right. So the next question would be, okay, so what's the least amount of things that I have to do to get there and see if that's doable. And, and I, I feel like the, that's, that conversation is usually best had with someone that's outside of the project. So for example, here at Wildlife, we, we have this conversation with the founders and they are like impartial to the project in the sense that they want the best projects to go forward, not necessarily this project. So I go there and present my case. Okay, here are the numbers of my game. Here's, here's what I've been about it. Here's what I have to do. And they are this like outside voice that every once in a few months look at that and say, okay, you are on track. Let's keep going. You are not on track. You have to, to get up to speed or something might not go well, or you're not on track. And I don't think you're going to be on track. Let's just disassemble this team and do something better. That makes sense. That actually kind of reminds me. Somebody was telling me um, that at Blizzard, they used to have this uh, 
kind of core team, almost like a SWAT team. They had a special name for it, which I, I can't remember right now. But um, this core team would kind of like, you'd, you'd have your game team. They're like working on your different games. And then uh, every so often the SWAT team would kind of come in and just give you this like outside analysis, like brutal truth of like how it is or whatnot. And I know uh, one of the core things that they did with uh, Diablo, the original one, uh, is they came in and they said, this needs to be like a, a real-time strategy type game. Uh, because at that point it was, uh, I can't even envision it, but it was like a, a turn-based game or, or something like that. Uh, but this like external team came in and had a drastic change. And I think had they not done that, the Diablo franchise probably never would have really gone anywhere. Um, so uh, it's really cool that you kind of have a, a similar sort of model where you guys have, you know, game teams that are building things, but you get this like outside perspective to come in because I think it's very easy to get caught into all the details and not take that high level view of what does this look like from the outside? How is a new player going to actually approach this versus, you know, living in the details and, and breathing it so closely? So that's super cool. Yeah, I think this is one of the strengths of having like larger companies and having a community in that company that can help you with stuff. So like my example here at Wildlife, I have bi-weekly talks with Arthur, one of the founders, where he helps me with the design of the game and like big questions about where the game should be heading. And then I can go to the game director of Tennis Clash, Anna, and she will help me with difficult stuff about project management because she's way better than I am in that. Like, okay, how can I plan for launching? How can I plan for uh, my team? Like, how can we put them into squads or should it just be one big cell? This kind of stuff. And like specific questions, I can always reach out to someone and say, oh, you have worked on a game about planes before. Like, how can, can we do this? Or you have played a lot of match tree. What do you think is good about match tree games? How can I make my match tree idea better? And I think this is something that really reinforces itself like the more people you have that have knowledge on how to do stuff and like how to and can spread that knowledge in the company the bigger better it will be for the next generation of people so like the same way that a lot of people mentored me and helped me understand what's important for games i try to do this with my team and like try to to plant the seeds of the next games of wildlife that's great i love that mentality i it's actually really refreshing to be in the games industry from other industries where I feel like uh, so many people uh, as evidenced by this podcast are, are willing to come and share the, the knowledge and insights and things that they've gained. So uh, it just makes me uh, super happy. So um, obviously coming up with a, a game idea is interesting, but like, is there anything that I can do to like further you know, validate that. Like I, I know market research is something that I hear people talk about, but like, what does that actually mean in practice? And is there any way that I can figure out like who this should be for so that I'm actually building the right things for them? Like if I wanted to make a match three game and I made it for me as somebody that doesn't play match three games, it's probably going to be a pretty crappy game, right? So, you know, I feel like you need to have an understanding of who is this for and then coming up with features to, uh, you know, engage with them. I remember one time I was talking to a guy um, and he identified we're, we're making a game for women and there's two core types of women that we want to be able to support uh, because we've kind of found and labeled these. And so um, both of them are a little bit older. They're probably moms. Um, one of them 
is kind of this uh, tendency of like throughout the day, whenever I get me time, you know, I'm running around with my kids and making food and cleaning the house and all the things working. Um, but whenever I have like a few minutes, I pull out my phone and I play a little section. It's probably like three minutes in length. And then uh, you've got the other group of them uh, that plans and organizes their days, you know, very seamlessly. Maybe they don't have young kids so they can do that. Um, but then, you know, you notice they don't really play at all throughout the day. And then, you know, 7 p.m. or something, they sit down and they play for an hour or two. Um, now, if you think about that, those are two very different audiences that you have to cater. Uh, one, you've got to make your sessions feel interesting and engaging for three minutes for the one set of users. And then, you know, you also have to allow them to be able to play for an hour or two. Um, and maybe you, you know, cap it at that point or, or something, but uh, it's got to feel meaningful. You've got to feel like you're making progression, you know, throughout the full two hours and there's stuff to look forward to, to tomorrow. <laughs> Otherwise they won't come back. Um, so I thought that was interesting, but um, is there a way for me to say, okay, I want to make a planes game. Who is this going to be for? And what sort of things is, is that person going to expect out of a game so that I could make the best possible planes game for them? So I think identifying your audience and like trying to understand what they are looking for is a key part of making any product, not only games. And there is like a lot of, of research on other industries about how to do this so like you don't have to restrict yourself to game knowledge like basically you, you want to make sure that you have product to market fit right and this would work for any startup in games specifically i think that one of the questions that helped me a lot with thinking is is what are the people that i want to play my game playing right now like who am i going to steal players from and looking at into of those games and one Interesting things like when we started making this question for Tennis Clash, we realized that a lot of our players weren't playing any other games. Like they weren't mobile players. They were tennis players. We wanted people that played tennis in real life to go and play our game when they can't get to the court for some reason. And this changed a lot of like how we, we thought about the game, especially how we thought about the tutorial, because like we, we don't we don't only need to teach these people how to play our game, we need to teach them how to play a game because they are not playing anything right now. And this helped a lot like when we started showing these guys that like our audience in tennis clash is mostly male so of course we have female players and our game director is female so but if i say guys it's just because i'm used to the majority here yeah. uh but like we have these guys that are 35 40 45 years old don't play a lot of games and say oh there's a game about tennis i like tennis i, I should try this so we have to be very forgiving in the beginning with them, like trying to teach them what it's like to play a game for the first time. And if we hadn't make this question and realized that, okay, this audience is very different from us, that like everyone here is a hardcore <laughs> gamer that knows a lot about what's going on, uh, we would have gone for, uh, into a wrong way for a long time. And I think this, like, the second thing is you should update your assumption of who your players are very frequently. So like try to do play tests, try to send surveys to the players, try to go into the Facebook group and see like, who are these guys? Who are these, these, these girls? Like what, they are, what do they look like? Where do they live? Like what are their knowledge of games? Because this will make you more empathetic to them and be able to better cater to those needs. And those are the, the kinds of things you do after you soft, soft launch the game, right? Yeah, yeah. So before you soft launch the game, I would say that you would use a lot of your employees and their family and friends. So like just 
get everyone in the office to stop for one hour and play your game and have them send it to their family, their friends. And you always find someone that for some re reason is very excited about that specific topic. So when we were doing making Tennis Clash, we had like someone who had a friend who had a friend who was a Olympic tennis player. I said, okay, we need to get to him and try to understand what's, uh, what he likes about this. Like same thing for Skywars. Like we have someone whose sister has a boyfriend that is a pilot for the American Air Force. Okay, we need to get to him and try to understand what he thinks is important about this topic. And like using this network to your advantage is very important. And then like the next step would be actually making playtests. Again, there are a lot of services to, for, for you to use to get players of specific demographic and just watch them play your game and ask them what they feel about important things. But the big test is when you soft launch. Like it's out in the world, everyone can play it, everyone can and will criticize it. So you can see <laughs> what's actually working or not. So I remember a, uh, a Supercell video that they released of some people that were playtesting. I think it might have been Brawl Stars or something like that. And it, it looked like from the player perspective that they were like recording the person's like phone as they were playing, but they were actually recording their face. And they were like looking for a certain emotion, whether like surprise or delight or something like in the person's face. And they actually got it. They went back later and traced it to like what moment happened in the game that like led up to that. But, um, you know, what do you guys look for in a play test? Like, are you looking for a certain emotion out of players or a reaction or just the way that they're talking or, yeah, well, what should I look for if I, you know, have never really done this play testing stuff before? Okay. So I think we're, we're probably looking for the same reaction, but you can look for this uh, by watching the person's face or by listening to her, but it's basically that, oh, moment, like, okay, this is cool. And for us, like the first time that you actually kill another plane and it's like, oh, I just blow his up. That's cool. Like what this moment is, what makes the person like get that dopamine shot and say, okay, this is fun. I'm having fun. I'm feeling good about myself. Like in tennis would be when you hit a winner shot, either an ace or just like uh, after a long rally and oh yeah, I just did what I wanted to do. And FPS matches usually is like when you get a, a headshot or something like that. This O moment is a lot of times like the core of your game. This is what you want players to look for. This is like, okay, this is what you are playing this game for. And now I want you to get better. And now I want you to go through the economy and get the better equipments and, and learn the, 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 like all the secrets of the game. So you can keep having this moment, like identifying this moment, say, okay, this is good. And like having this moment to begin with, it's one of the best things when we are developing the core gameplay. And also that feeling of, okay, I, I want to keep playing this. And I think I had a few games that we tested that like we just did like a five minutes prototype. And okay, you have like five minutes of gameplay. You tell me what you feel afterwards. And the best feeling after that is like when the person says, okay, when can I play five minutes more? Like when do you have more content for me? Like this feeling of, I want to keep playing this is... It's very hard to come by, but when you when you get that, okay, you have a promising core gameplay. Now I have to yeah. think about all this stuff that goes around it and like how are we going to keep people engaged for a long time? How are we going to monetize it? How are we going to distribute it? But the core, like at least that's my belief or and wildlife's belief in general, like at the core of every successful game, there is this core mechanic, this core action, this core gameplay that is fun and people want to keep having that, that feeling. All the rest is just to potentialize this. That's amazing.
I, I really like that. I feel like I heard somebody say something about that with like Playtest Cloud, where they're like, you know, you get really good information, but you actually know that you're onto something if players keep playing the game after the like required time that they have to play it. Um, so that, you know, oh, I've got more than five minutes of gameplay, you know, thing is a very interesting uh, thing to think about. That's awesome. Cool. So you just kind of created this game. I don't know if you're able to go into it, but, you know, could you tell us like the approach? Okay, so you got it ready for soft launch, but like, what does soft launch look for like for you and your game? Like, are there certain stages or certain ways that you approach it? Um, because I know a lot of people approach it a little bit differently, and I don't know that anyone feels like they do it right, but they're kind of curious how other folks are, are, are handling a soft launch. I think the best way to approach a soft launch is to think about the questions that you want answered. Like, if you already knew everything there is to know about your game, and there are no doubts in your mind. You don't need a soft launch, just launch it outright. But you probably want to know a lot of stuff before you do that. So the first big question is like, is this game going to be successful? Can we acquire users at a sustainable uh, price? Uh, can we make enough money out of this game to support the team and to make sense investing it? So like, especially from a business standpoint, I think that's the big question that we want to, to answer as fast as possible. Like what's the expected range of money that we can expect from this. And then you, you should probably have a few hypotheses of what you need to be true for this game to be successful. So I'll go back to my Tennis Clash example, just because we are still in the middle of Sky Warriors. But in Tennis Clash, we have like three main hypotheses that are very generic and could be applied to a lot of games. They are basically, okay, we can make uh, a good tennis gameplay and make it feel like you are playing tennis at a very simple level. We can have an economy that supports this and that, that makes you want to keep getting better. And we can distribute this very well because there are a lot of people that want to play tennis games and don't have a, tennis, a good tennis game to play right <laughs> now. So like for the first one, we basically look at day one retention. So like we, we let people play for one day and see if they come back. And like, this is fun. So that core base gameplay is fun enough. The second one, it's a bit trickier, but you actually have to have monetization in your game and look for longer term retention, conversion, ARPU, uh, but still like just look at the numbers and try to adjust your thesis according to that. Like the third one was a bit trickier because we believe that like the core idea was tennis is the fourth most popular sport in the world. And there is no good tennis game out there for these people to, to play. It's like so many people play tennis in real life. So many people watch tennis. They should want a tennis game. And this should be translated into low CPIs. And like when we started to test the game, it was good, but not incredible. Like, okay, it's okay. We're doing fine, but we were hoping we would do better. And at some point we realized, okay, we are just testing this game in countries that don't have a, a tradition of tennis. Like our whole thesis is that this is that we want people that play tennis to play our game. So let's test this in European countries that like to play the real sport. And like we soft launched it in Italy and Spain, like a few weeks before the date that we wanted to globally launch it. And it hit like top three grossing in both countries. So, okay, okay, we have something there. We are in the right track. Let, let's keep investing in it. I like that a lot. It, it sort of reminds me, 
um, there was a book that I read recently and I can't remember the name of the book and it's actually outside of gaming. Uh, it was written by one of the uh, CEOs of PNG Procter and Gamble um, and the consultant that he used to kind of redefine the way that they do innovation at Procter and Gamble. And I remember at one point they were talking about their pharmaceuticals line uh, in Procter and Gamble and uh they kept having all of these tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, invested into these projects that ultimately failed. And usually they were failing like at some point towards the end of the project for whatever reason. Um, and so what they came in and did is they said, okay, so, you know, let's take a look at these projects and see like, what are the things that if this piece fails or doesn't hit this threshold, you know, there's no way that we could ever possibly launch this drug. Um, and, and by the same token, so those are like the required ones. And are there any things that like, oh, well, if this is at this level, but all of these other ones are in line, we would still launch this. Um, and then let's reorient those and let's take the required ones and let's figure out how to test those first and let's test them in like the order of risk. So like the riskiest one gets tested first. Now it was a little bit more work to readjust some of those types of things to be able to test um, and to figure out how to test them. But once they started doing that, they were killing all these projects way, way, way earlier. And they saved so much money and they started having projects that were actually launched to completion and actually being successful um, and turning some ROI. Um, they eventually transitioned this out to all of their products at uh, PNG, which is like, I don't know, tons of things. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it just really redefined the way that innovation works at PNG. Um, I was curious, you know, could this work within gaming with the idea of like, could I make an ad for a game and CPI test it? Like, is the CPI one of the most important things? Uh, you know, what are those like really important things for gaming that I need to test before I can do it? And what is the fastest, most effective way to actually test those so that I don't spend six months working on a game that I could have killed with maybe like two weeks of work or something like that by testing the right things only to now have wasted six months of my, you know, limited runway, especially for like a gaming startup, um, you know, that they can't spend making some other game. Yeah, I think this idea of fail faster, it's great and completely applies here. And I'd say that it depends a lot of, on the thesis of the game, like what you want to be true for your game to be successful. And like, you should definitely see, okay, if I'm trying to make a hyper casual game that will be very easy to distribute, you probably should test CPI very early on. Or if you say, okay, I'm trying to make a game that will have a, a very high LTV, you need to think about, okay, what is the monetization that I'm going to use here to support this very high LTV? So in the case of CPI, you can test without even having like any game at all. Just get some creatives made and test the click-through rate of the, those. And if you have like any somewhat decent UA guy on your team, they should be able to come back to you at like after two weeks and say, okay, this game CPI is this and this. And to be able to distribute it, you should achieve a C uh, LTV of this. And you should be able to look at this and say, okay, this looks reasonable. We should keep going in that direction. Or, okay, this doesn't look reasonable at all. We have to change our idea completely or just drop it entirely. And the other thing that I think is very telling is the day one retention. So 
of course, there are games that can be successful with low retention numbers, especially if they have good monetization or if they are particularly easy to distribute. Mm -hmm. But you can like at least compare it to your portfolio or to other games that are around there. It's okay, if my retention is 10 points lower than other similar games, it's very hard to believe that this game is going to be successful. There is something inherently broken with that. And you can like you, you can discover that with a very short vertical slice of the game. You can like just make the experience of the first day of the player and see if they come back the next game, the next day. Mm-hmm. And and even like before you do that, internally I think you should have a playtest and see is this fun? Like I think that this very subjective, very personal question is still very important. Like if no one in your team believes that that experience is fun, you probably shouldn't keep pursuing it. Like, why do you think that someone out there in the world will find this fun while no one that are working for you finds that fun? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very interesting um, thing that I feel like we forget a lot like when we're in the, the crux of making things. It's like, even once you've got a live game, um, the players are constantly asking themselves of like, is this fun? Uh, you know, is this a good use of my time? And if they ever say no, they've got literally millions of other options of ways that they could spend their time watching shows or trying other games or, or whatnot. So um, the fun test is so critical, I feel like, uh, just just so critical. Um, what is interesting though, is I think there are different types of fun. Um, so, you know, as an example, there's a lot of people that really like and talk about Archero all the time. However, I've uh, talked to some people that played Archero and they churned out right away. Um, and why? Well, they kind of said, well, it, you know, it was fun at first um, when I was, you know, just me and my bow and I'm like shooting things and I'm dodging things and kind of playing skillfully and stuff. Uh, but like a few levels in, I got all these power ups and things and there's like arrows going everywhere. I can't even see myself. Like I'm not able to dodge. I, I don't know what's going on. And so some people love that and that's super fun. Um, but you know, this group of people, they actually find it more fun to have a little bit more of that like challenging experience of like, I've got to dodge and I've got to shoot and I don't have all these like power ups to help me and stuff like that. Um, So yeah, I think figuring out those moments of fun and building for those types of players, uh, you know, chances are you could make an Archero clone that, you know, has the same sort of gameplay, but instead of giving you all these power-ups, it's more about just like the single arrow dodge scenario. And, and maybe that would be fun. I don't know if that's fun for days or weeks or years, but um, it, it's interesting. Um, and it, it might pass the fun test for some people. So I love that. So, so just want to say that I think that like trying to qualify that fun is very important. And there are a few formal approaches to try to do that. Like I, I really like the MDA approach the mechanics dynamics aesthetics so it's basically like they try to describe eight different types of fun because like fun is a very broad and hard to define concept like so when i say okay i find this is fun what am i actually mean by that and some games like for the tennis clash it's a lot about the challenge like i like going there against someone or someone else and defeating them so like there's a lot of competitiveness in there there's a lot of like trying to master uh, a specific technique. In other games, like most match three, is that about the submission or abnegation? Like I'm just matching the colors and it, it looks good. It has a lot of visual effects and I can forget about the world for a while. So I really, I really think it's important, especially for teams that don't have a lot of designers in them, 
to try to go and understand a bit about the theory of design and like wh why do we say something is fun yeah no that's interesting so so jumping back to uh soft launch a bit um i just want to talk a little bit about like some of the challenges that come from uh, maybe not having like a ton of users in your game um, and like channel quality. Like sometimes I, I talk to folks where they've got a soft launch game and they, you know, acquire a thousand or a few thousand users from like Facebook. Um, and man, their metrics are killing it. They've got like awesome retention and all these things. The game team is flying high. And then, you know, they push out an update, they acquire another thousand or two users and their metrics are terrible. Like terrible and you're like well did i did i break things you're frantically trying to like dig through like did i get the wrong people like how like between batches you can have just like vastly different people that have like vastly uh different opinions about the game so to speak with their retention numbers um and it just kind of curious like do you have any tips on how to like handle those types of uh channel quality like within when you're in soft launch or especially like if you want to test monetization like if you're having less than like 10,000 users yeah maybe you're going to get a, a 61 cent arp dow and you're feeling really high but you know when you scale it up it's probably not going to be there so how can you like realistically get you know what you know good data so that you can make the decisions that you want to make i guess yeah so i think the first thing that's actually kind of hard to say but you're gonna have to spend money like you have to have no numbers of users to have any quality data. And as you said, like most people, like most companies will start with Facebook because it's the easiest one is the, like people just use Facebook and Facebook is very, very good at knowing what people want and giving it to them. So like if I'm making an airplane game, Facebook will find those 200 people in the country that just want an airplane game or like just waiting to download it and spend all their money into it. So the very first cohorts of users that you get will be way better than the average usually. And I think the first thing is to recognize that and not let yourself be fooled by too many good metrics when you start in a new country. Like this will happen every time that you go to a new country. So like if you are in Brazil and like your numbers are already stable and then it's like, oh, we should launch in Argentina. And then like it will be way better for a while. And naively you could say, oh, Argentina likes this game more than Brazil. But no, it's just that you are finding the first few users in, in Argentina. So I would say like wait a few days maybe a few weeks and then look at those numbers and see like, okay, this is stable now. Now I can actually start experimenting with it. Because like, if you just look at two days and everything's good and you introduce a new onboarding or you introduce a new feature and everything will be worse after that, you, you, there's a very good chance that people will just look and just say, okay, you made the game worse, but actually like, it's just your users deteriorating. And also to that matter, when possible, try to A-B test everything to get out of this kind of effect. So like if you do an A-B test, even though like both, both groups are going down because you're hitting such a bit of saturation, you can still see which one of those groups are doing slightly less worse than the other. And possibly that like, probably that's the right choice. Yeah. We sort of touched on this a little bit, but you know, when you're kind of in this early soft launch stage, um, you know, do you have any like rules that you tend to follow uh, related to like when I should do a play test versus like a closed beta or like a full on soft launch and like what size of each makes sense? So I wouldn't say I have any rules on that. It probably I should have, but I think this, I hope this is something that 
that will come with more experience after I have launched a few games. But so far, like what I try to do is first thing we, we have at least two playtests with the team every week. So like every Monday and every Thursday, the whole team stops and play the game. And we can see, okay, this is feeling good. This is feeling bad. This is better than last week. And first that like this makes people actually committed to making the game better and like seeing if the game is actually better. And the second is it makes you feel like you're moving forward because like if every week you are just coding and not seeing the, the final product, it, it can it start to get stale. So like if you see every week the, the final product getting better, it motivates people to keep pushing forward. And so this is like with, for the playtest with the team. With external people, I would say that you should make playtests every time you have big enough changes to see an improvement. So like if you just made a very minor change in the onboarding, people might not even notice it. Even though like if you had thousands of users, this could make maybe get your retention one point up. When you get a playtest with like 10, 20 people, maybe none of them will notice it. So it has to be different enough so you can actually perceive their difference in their, their reactions. And if you are moving fast enough, I would say that this should happen every four to six weeks at least. And then soft launch. On one hand, I would say soft launch as soon as possible because it's good to have data. On the other hand, like it takes preparation, it takes money to soft launch. So I would say you have to have your game complete enough that you have to get valuable data. So like if you want to test monetization, you have to have a good store and you have to have like enough of a meta game to justify people converting. Otherwise, you just have like mm. two weeks of one IEP a day and it won't tell you anything. So yeah, I think that's my kind of convoluted answer, but try to test <laughs> a lot of your team, try to, to test every five, four to six weeks with people outside of the team and soft launch as soon as you think you can get valuable data from users. Oh, that's really great. I love that. Have you ever kind of, I guess, with the, the Facebook quality stuff you're talking about, um, have you ever been able to like talk to those people and effectively like put them into different groups or something like that. So, you know, with that example that I gave you earlier, where there was like the two types of the, the females for this kind of puzzly game, um, one that plays those really like, you know, three minute sessions is all she has time for. And one that plays the long, like hour to two hour sessions. Um, you know, I could have made a game that the session length or that's ideal is like 10 to 15 minutes that like didn't fit either of them. Um, and I might've had terrible metrics of, as such because they just kind of turned out because the game didn't, you know, really work for them in their lives. Um, but, you know, do you have any tips or tricks to like understand, you know, these types of users or um, have you ever been able to get in contact with a user that churned out of your game to kind of ask why? Um, because I think that can be super valuable. Like it's, it's useful to talk to the players that are still around that are in your Facebook group and love your game and stuff. But um, sometimes, at least for me, I'm really wondering like, well, why did you you know, churn out of the game? Like, was it not fun? Was there something that was frustrating? Was there a bug? Most people aren't going to take the time to report that stuff. It's just oh, delete the game or just never open it up again um, or you forget about it or something. Yeah, so I think it's very valuable to understand why people are churning and it's very hard. Uh, uh, I had the luck of running into players that used to play Tennis Clash because some of them like knew my username and they saw, like actually one of them in particular was very, very active in Tennis Clash and like made videos and posted in the Facebook group and everything. And he saw that I posted about launching a new game so like he reached out and said oh when is this game coming to england and everything so i could chat with him like trying to understand this but i think this is like an anecdote and very 
rare case. So I would say that the best way to try to do this on a regular basis is to have a uh, relationship with our community. So like we have a community management team in wildlife that runs the Facebook, Reddit, Discord groups, and they know who the more engaged players are. And those players usually talk about your game like every day or at least every week. So if you have someone that's looking into the community and they know the players and they are used to see them every week there and they just disappear at some point, like stop showing up, it makes sense for them to reach out and try to understand what happens. And they would probably, because they are talking to the community every day, be able to tell the game team, okay, people are getting mad about this. People don't like this update or people are getting tired of this feature. Like try to consistently listen to your community and actually listen to what they are saying, what they are asking for is very important. And people sometimes forget about this either because they are focused on other things or because game communities can be quite toxic. So people sometimes like just shut up and say, okay, I won't listen to what players are saying because they are mostly insulting me. So it's hard to try to filter out this toxicity sometimes, but I think it's very important. Yeah, that's really awesome. I, I like that idea of listening to the players and, and kind of giving them what they want. I mean, uh, I was recently listening to a Deconstructor, a fun podcast with uh, Ken Go of DECA Games, and he was talking about uh, the first game that they kind of took over um, and how really all they did to start with was they just went to kind of the community pages and they just kind of let them know of like, hey guys, you know, we're, we're taking over this new game. You know, here's who we are. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to change anything right now. Like we just want to listen and then we want to uh, give you guys more of what you want. Um, and the community and like just came alive. They resurrected all these like players who hadn't played the game in a long time uh, or who had just kind of been lurking and stuff. Um, and like engagement, monetization, everything just like skyrocketed from, you know, this game that they just taken over, which they're, you know, and kind of like, oh, oh this is great. Um, and then literally most of what they do is they just try to like listen to the players and then, you know, give them the features or the things that they want and kind of do it collaboratively, um, which is just so cool. And, and, you know, it's a great example of how to run that live game and you're kind of saying uh, a similar thing for this kind of soft launch game of getting ready to you know listen to the community give the players what they want uh, so it kind of seems like the lesson across the board should be uh, make sure that we're really listening to our players and trying to accommodate for the things that they want to do uh, which you know generally makes sense like if i want to play a game where i'm like this souped up hero and i want to destroy everything and then you give me more opportunities to do that thing and to feel awesome i'm probably going to play the game more because it's what i want to do yeah so i think there's of course a very high correlation of people that are engaged with your game and engaged with the community and people are spending money in your game so it makes financial sense to be listening to those guys and a lot of the times like people just want to feel listened to so like they have been complaining about matchmaking for six months and then you go and say, oh, guys, we listened to you. We have deployed a new solution to matchmaking. Let us know what you think, like made a change. Even if the change is not what they were expecting, they would like, they would like that they felt listened to. And uh, I know like some people that I won't point fingers uh, like who they are, but I know that they have baited the community for just like, okay, we are going to change this. Let's ask the community what they want. Hope that they say this and then release the stuff that we're, we were going to release anyway, because the, the community will feel like they asked for this and we listen, even though we were going to do this anyway. Like people just feel good about this. It's like they will, they are spending a lot of money, a lot of time in your game. 
And for them to feel like you care about them, like, and for you to care about them is very special and something that will deepen that connection with your game. So I think we've only got about time for uh, one more question um, before we get to our unofficial question, of course. Um, but uh, that's the idea of monetization. So I feel like monetization, a lot of product teams don't really like it. They're like, don't ruin my game with monetization. Um, I'm just kind of curious, like what sort of recommendations and thoughts you have around it? Like, should I soft launch a game without monetization or could I even do that? Some people I've, I've heard argue for the sake that it's a different game if you add monetization to it uh, than it was, you know, soft launch before you kind of have to do that. And does it even make sense to try to calculate and record monetization within a soft launch uh, understanding that to do so would require a lot more UA spend to get, you know, statistically significant amounts of uh, paying players. I feel like most of the industry, if not almost all of the industry today relies on free to play games and monetization is part of the design. Like you have to think of the monetization from the inception of the idea, because it will be part of how players progress in your game and how they, they relate to your game. So if you intend to make something that's entirely cosmetic and they can't in any way pay to progress you have to test if this is what players of that kind want and if this is enough for you to to have a profitable game from the beginning because if like six months later you say oh yeah this is not working we will have to have people purchase consumables or purchase upgrades this is just going to change like completely your original design of the game so like you have been building one game for six months and you have to try to just change it. And most of the time it won't work. You, you needed to have done that from scratch. So I would say you have to test monetization as early as possible and try to understand how this enhances the game. I feel like the, the best made games out there are games where the player doesn't feel the need to play, to pay. But mm -hmm. when they do, it actually makes the game experience better. Exactly. So yeah. I, I want to say that Supercell games do this very well. I think that Lilith games do this very well. And they are like very hardcore games like Rise of Kingdoms, where if you pay, you just crush everyone. And still they do this in a way that people feel good about this and it just enhances the experience. So this definitely can be done, but it has to be fought from the beginning. So it has to be part of the soft launch. I love that. Can I soft launch a game before I have monetization in there if I want to try to calculate that uh, day one retention or, or whatnot to see, like, is it worth pursuing towards monetization? Yeah, I think it makes sense, especially if, if that's what you want to test. Like, so, of course, if you want, if you have a game that has 10% day one retention, you don't have to bother with monetization because nothing's going to save that. So, like, if you are still trying to test the orders, if your core idea is fun, then definitely for you know like just soft launch the game and test what the players think but you have to be thinking about okay if this works out what's the next step how i'm going to monetize this because if you just say oh yeah first i'm going to make this fun and then i'm going to think about monetization it's probably not going to to work out yeah that's great well uh because we are on the master retention podcast of course uh my final unofficial question is uh what's you know, one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years that um, you found helps to increase retention or how do you keep players around for longer? I'm trying to think about the best thing. And I feel like one thing that matters a lot, especially for engaged players, is the competition side of, of games. So even like 
single player games. If you have a leaderboard somewhere and you can see like, the player can see how they are doing against their friends or against the best people in the server, the best people in the world, this will keep pushing them. And like, if you put a notification, oh, your friend just beat you in this level, they will open up that app like instantly, wherever they are, and <laughs> will try to beat their friend. So like competition, especially for more hardcore games, but even for casual games, competition yeah. is something that drives retention in a very positive way because people want to go back there and beat their friend or beat the best person in the server, like beat someone that had just beaten them. And then it goes back to the other side. So like it gets this, this tennis match, basically like I beat you. So you get a notification that you are now second place. And like you have to go back and play the game a bit more. So people just keep trying to push each other and do your job for you and try and getting other people back into the game. Yeah, it actually, you know, as you were saying it, you know, someone to compare to, um, it, it's almost like just giving humans a reference point. Um, yeah. So, you know, the psychological principle of like, if I go into a store to like buy a suit, um, suits are pretty expensive here. Um, and they get me to buy a two, $300 suit. I now have this like high reference point. Um, and even when I'm comparing that to other suits, like they might first show me the thousand dollar suit and then they show me the three hundred dollar suit they really want me to buy and i'm like whoa this is a lot cheaper than the thousand dollar suit uh okay my expectation is yeah I'm, I'm getting a pretty good deal here um and then they might be like well do you want to add the belt for twenty dollars and the shoes for fifty dollars and so now i'm comparing twenty and fifty to that three hundred dollar mark and i'm like well sure it doesn't really matter you know mean too much but i end up dropping five hundred six hundred dollars because you've got all these accessories and stuff but just having that reference point to compare against i think is is so key because we tend to first, oh, a $50 offer versus a $5 offer. Oh, this one must be worth way, way, way more because it's more expensive than this one or whatnot, or I'm getting a great deal. Um, so, you know, within the context of a leaderboard, holy smokes, somebody beat this in only, you know, 20 moves. Wow. Okay. Well, I know that it's attainable. How did they do that? And they just keep trying to play and play and to do that because previously maybe they beat it in 30 and they thought they were doing amazing and the best in the world. And now they realize that they didn't. So that's super cool. I, I love that one. Uh, well, Luis, uh, this has been amazing. Uh, if people do have, you know, questions and want to get in contact with you, is there a good way for them to do that? Yeah. I think the best way to be honest is my LinkedIn. So my name might be a bit hard to spell for people that don't speak Portuguese and Italian. It's, it's a mix, but it's Luis, L-U-I-Z, Piccini, P-I-C-C-I-N-I. Just add me, shoot me a message. And I love talking about games. I love talking about making games. Let's just talk. Sounds great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.